Okay, good morning. Let's get started <clears throat> with Sunday School. We'll do that by praying together. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Um, we thank you for your faithfulness in your Son and his uh, prophecy of judgment upon Israel and upon the temple um, of your people. Um, Father, we thank you for that because it shows us uh, the movement of redemptive history, the way in which your Son became in his own body, the new temple, and those who were united to him um, shared in that um, status as your dwelling place, Father. We thank you for how um, his sacrifice for sin um, ended the need uh, for the temple in Jerusalem, and even how your judgment of it um, shows your faithfulness um, to combat sin and to judge sin uh, with righteousness. We Pray this morning as we consider even these things together that you'll give us wisdom and, um, and uh, clarity as we, as we talk. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so today we are going to continue this sort of brief series about uh, preterism. Um, uh, preterism is the uh, idea that in the New Testament, um, the prophecies of judgment that you read in the Gospels and the lips of Jesus and the lips of John the Baptist and then those prophecies that are often repeated by the apostles and the epistles um, uh, have largely to do often with this cataclysmic event that happened in 70 AD, um, the destruction of Jerusalem and especially the temple um, that had been rebuilt um, after the Babylonian exile and return, um, that, that actually this destruction of the temple was something that was really central uh, to Jesus' understanding of his own ministry, his own life. Um, it was something that almost had, not almost, it had to happen, um, really, in order for him to fully establish the new thing that he was doing in his own body um, and blood as he offered himself on the cross and rose from the dead, announcing forgiveness of sins in his hands. Um, I, I wanted to recommend to you, just as you're thinking about resources, if this is a topic that you've never thought about maybe or you just want to study more, um, this book by R.C. Sproul uh, called The Last Days According to to Jesus is a very helpful, I'd say probably the most helpful sort of introductory level book on this topic um, in terms of, uh, and, and this is a book by R.C. Sproul, who you've probably heard of, a really well-known, famous, um, reformed uh, pastor and teacher um, who passed away a year or two ago. Um, and, and what he does here, as he does often in his books, is take a complex topic and really um, just dispense um, some uh, really uh, straightforward way of looking at it and thinking about it, walking through the scriptures, looking at um, the Olivet Discourse in detail, looking at um, the redemptive history and what does it mean for the temple to be destroyed, looking at the epistles and even uh, the book of Revelation and what, what, how all these things fit together into this uh, perspective that we're calling preterism. So, so R.C. Sproul was a preterist, so it's not just me. Um, guys like R.C. Sproul um, also believe the things that I'm teaching you and um, I would encourage you to take a look at this book um, if you're interested. It's a great resource. It's available on Amazon and other fine booksellers, I'm sure. Um, so today I wanted to jump into or continue the discussion we started two weeks ago. Um, and remember all of this, the reason we're doing this is just a really short sort of series to help prepare us as we look at Mark 13, um, which actually will we'll start next Sunday in our sermon series. Mark 13 is where Jesus gives what is popularly known as the Olivet Discourse, um, the teaching that happens on the Mount of Olives as he's looking out over the Temple Mount 
his disciples come to him and ask him about the destruction of the temple, when it will happen, what will the signs be, and Jesus proceeds to explain for them. Um, of course, that discourse is sometimes um, taught in such a way that is oriented largely towards the end of the world, right? The end of um, sort of uh, existence as we experience it today. Uh, but the perspective I'm going to be arguing from, the one that I think is more um, uh, straightforward and biblical, is that Jesus is most mostly talking about what the men before him um, will actually they may not experience themselves because many of them will die uh, before it happens in 70 AD, but something that will happen in that generation, um, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus prophesies about, the prophecies, prophesies about that. And that prophecy, of course, has a lot of implications for the end of the world and the return of Jesus. Um, Jesus' judgment of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD is a foreshadowing, a precursor to what will happen in fullness on the last day. Um, certainly we can say that, but it's also important for us as we come to these texts to understand them in their historical context, and that's the perspective that I'll be arguing from. So I just wanted to take a few weeks in Sunday school and, and just really sort of give a little more depth, because you can only say so much in a 30-minute sermon um, to this, this topic as we approach it together as a church, as the Spirit brings it before us as we proceed through the Gospel of Mark. So today I wanted to talk some about um, just this, this topic of the temple and why it was so important, um, why the destruction of the temple was so important in redemptive history and also in practical history, just, just religious history in terms of um, the religious history for the Jewish people and for Christianity as well. Um, and just want to walk through some of these things so we can think about, and I think this really helps us, uh, helps us understand the New Testament uh, why the New Testament would have spoken of the temple as the destruction of the temple in the way that Jesus did, that it wasn't just a sort of random prophecy that he made. It was actually a central dynamic and aspect of his ministry. The temple had to be destroyed in many ways. Um, and it was something that the New Testament church would have anticipated and waited for and wanted to see happen. It would have been a vindication not only of Jesus as a prophet, but also of the transformation that had taken place in redemptive history through his death and resurrection. I really want to argue today is that uh, the Christian world that we inhabit today, the world that is under the authority and dominion of Jesus Christ and, and slowly being transformed and discipled into his fullness of his kingdom, is unthinkable if there were, for the last 2,000 years, a temple in Jerusalem offering animal sacrifices on a daily basis as though that were a true atonement for sin. Does that make sense? I, what I want us to see is that, that that is not just a historical accident, that's an unthinkable reality. There's no way in which the Jewish temple could coexist in a world where Jesus' death and resurrection have atoned fully for sin. Um, God had, in many ways, to end um, that that era of redemptive history had to put a capstone on it, and the fitting way, the right way to do it, was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So what was so important then about this destruction of the temple as we think about it? First, I just want to think about it largely through the lens of a historical event and what impact it had on the world at that time and throughout the centuries. <clears throat> so one of the practical consequences of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and we talked about this two weeks ago, right? Remember how there was this 
this period of rebellion as the Jewish nation rose against Rome and, and for about three or four years actually liberated themselves um, from the Roman legions and established uh, a new Zion, so to speak, in Jerusalem in around 67 AD. Um, they had initial victories over the Romans, but then um, the, the many more legions came. There was a long siege. Um, um, hundreds of thousands of people died and eventually the city was overrun and burned and the temple was destroyed and the temple vessels were carried off as spoil to Rome. So what were the practical consequences of that event? First of all, I'd say the destruction of the temple marked the end of old, what I would call Old Testament Israelite religion. I'm not using the word Judaism here because one of the things I want to argue is that Judaism actually didn't really come into existence until after the temple was destroyed. It was something that had to be invented and created after the destruction of the temple. Um, what we refer to today as Judaism did not exist in the same way because Old Testament Israelite religion had what practice at its heart? What was the central thing? Sacrifices, right? Sacrifices, and not just sacrifices in any old place, right? You couldn't just go to Bethel or Dan, as the Israelites figured out eventually. Um, to offer your sacrifices, you had to go to the place where God had appointed for sacrifices to be made, where the tabernacle was initially, right? That was the dwelling place of God when it was built um, after the Exodus. And then eventually the tabernacle was rooted in one spot in the holy city in Jerusalem um, and transformed into a temple during the kingship of Solomon. And at that point, what did you have to do every year if you were a Jewish male? Three times a year, you had to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice, right? Um, and sacrifices were always being perpetually offered there. This is, this is what Old Testament Israelite religion was all about, right? If you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see again and again there's this emphasis on the sacrificial system as a central aspect of Old Testament Israelite religion. Um, so I, one of the arguments I want to make is that the destruction of the temple marked the end of this era and really of this way of relating to God, this religious system. And it's important for us to remember this religious system had existed for almost 1,500 years, about 1,500 years at this point, right? Um, if you take the early date of Exodus, which I do, um, and even if you take a slightly later date, um, the Exodus happened, I believe, in the 15th century BC, around 1440. Um, and Remember, right after the Exodus, when the nation of Israel was established, the thing that seals its establishment at the end of Exodus is the completion of the tabernacle and the glory cloud of God coming down and inhabiting. That, that is when Israel becomes Israel, right? Um, she wasn't really Israel before that. She had received the law and those things, but it was through the giving of the law, through the establishment of the sacrificial system, that Israel came into existence in the way that we think about it in the Old Testament. So for 1,500 years, there was a brief period of, of interlude during the Babylonian exile, of course, where the temple was destroyed and sacrifices ceased to be offered, but that only lasted about 70 years. And then the people came back and they rebuilt the temple and they began to offer sacrifices again. So essentially for 1,500 years, you've had this system of animal sacrifice um, that has taken place, has been at the heart of, um, of the Israelite religion, Old Testament religion. Um, and that ended, uh, it ended in 70 AD. And we just should think about that as, as just sort of a practical consequence 
Um, there were no more sacrifices after 70 AD. Uh, the Levitical priesthood was lost. Um, uh, there were no more uh, people who went around um, uh, you know, being Levites for the people, acting as priests for the nation. Um, there were no more sacrifices offered. All of that ended. Um, there was no access to Jerusalem, actually, for the Jewish people after the destruction of that city. Uh, Romans actually barred them because they understood how important it was for Jewish national identity, and they didn't want any more Jewish rebellions. And so Jews were actually not permitted to go into Jerusalem for about 300 years until the time of um, Constantine, when he Christianized um, the, the empire and allowed Jews to come back to Jerusalem if they wanted to. Um, so it's actually really fascinating that, that, you know, this wasn't just like the temple got burned and then the Romans left and people got to do what they wanted. Um, there was a widespread disbursement of all those who had opposed the Roman Empire. They were taken in exile to Rome and to other places. And no person who was religiously Jewish was allowed even to re-enter the temple for hundreds of years um, as imperial policy for Rome. Um, so it really was the end of something substantial. So what did this lead to? This led to the establishment of what we call Judaism today. Um, it's important for us to think about this, that Judaism today is not Old Testament Israelite religion. It simply can't be, because at the center of Old Testament Israelite religion was a system of animal sacrifice and an uh, establishment of Jerusalem as the holy city of God, where you'd have to go and make, and make those sacrifices for your sins. Um, and so because that was stripped away, that was taken away forcibly by God, um, what came after had to be functionally a different religion. And that's exactly what you see historically. You can read all about this. The development of Judaism takes place, everyone agrees, after 70 AD. And basically it was, how do you have all these people who have been religious for thousands of years who suddenly have the thing uh, at the heart of their religion stripped away and made impossible what do they have to do? Well, they have to create something new, an alternative way of relating to God, an alternative way of understanding the forgiveness of their sins. And that's what you see with rabbinic Judaism. It's important to say that rabbinic Judaism took place historically, you can just read all about this, through the leadership of a particular sect of Israelites called the Pharisees. Now, you may have heard of the Pharisees, right? Um, the Pharisees, as the Gospels clearly teach, were the people who were most involved, prominently involved, with the crucifixion of Jesus, right? That's where rabbinic Judaism comes from, just historically. It's the same people, it's their sons um, who created rabbinic Judaism. They were the rabbis um, who led the people and taught them, the same people who uh, murdered Jesus, to put it bluntly, um, and then uh, who them and their descendants persecuted the church uh, for the next 40 years and sought to put to death um, followers of Jesus. Um, so I think it's just really important as we think about Judaism today that that, that is the genesis of, of Judaism, is people who, as a very central part of their identity, was opposition to Jesus of Nazareth. And not just opposition in a mild way, but violent opposition um, to Jesus. Um, and so it's just important for us to think about Judaism that, that that was, that was the, the genesis of it. Uh, and really the way in which rabbinic Judaism got established was through the writing down of the oral law. Now, if you remember in Jesus during his um, ministry, he often interacted with the Pharisees. And one of his major complaints of the Pharisees, his major critiques of them, was about the oral law. 
right? That over the years, um, the, the rabbis had, and the Pharisees had added to the written law of God um, in Moses, that Moses had been given to Moses and through Moses, um, their own interpretation, right? Um, you know, God says on the Sabbath day, um, you shall rest and keep it holy. And the, the Pharisees thought, well, let's help you know, people understand that better. What does it really mean to rest? Well, we'll give them a prescribed number of steps that they can take during the day. And if you under, are under these number of steps, you're resting. If you're not, um, you're, you're breaking God's law, was their argument. And, you know, there are certain activities you can do on the Sabbath day that constitute rest and others that don't, et cetera, et cetera. And remember, this, actually, this Sabbath issue was one of the major things that Jesus got into it with the Pharisees about, because according to them, some of the actions that Jesus was undertaking like his, apost- like his disciples rubbing grain in the fields, was a violation not of God's law, not of the written law of God through Moses, but of their oral tradition said, you can't do that. You can't take grains from, from a field and rub them in your hands and snack, basically, as you travel from one place to another. You can't do that. Um, so it's just, I'd, it's important for us to see that actually, so what happened was this oral tradition always, um, was, was, was in the air, it was right there, but it wasn't written down. It wasn't written down because the Pharisees had a central place where they could gather and have their schools and, um, and you know, everything could take place, which was Jerusalem. So suddenly Jerusalem is taken away. People are, rabbis are dispersed, Pharisees are dispersed. So what do they have to do? They have to codify this oral tradition that has become so important to them as their understanding of the sort of gatekeepers of the law, the the authorized interpreters of God's law for God's people. And so they write it down. And that is um, what we call, you may have heard of the Mishnah um, or the Gemara, and these together make the Talmud. The Talmud is is essentially the the writing down of rabbinic, um, pharisaical oral law um, on paper um, that takes place. It's partly interpretation of the law. Part of it, of course, is also commentary on the scriptures, on the Old Testament scriptures, and this together constitutes the Talmud, which is a you know, really important, if you know anything about modern-day Judaism, the Talmud is very important, some would say just as important potentially as the Old Testament writings themselves. Um, but I think it's just important for us to see that all of this took place as a direct consequence of the destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple led to these things. And, and that, that written document that is the, that's at the heart of Judaism uh, modern-day Judaism, is the very teaching that Jesus condemned, right? Jesus spent so much of his career condemning this teaching, called it a way of enslavement of God's people, um, how burdens were being put on these people in ways that God um, did not sanction and actually constituted abuse of God's people, even as we're going to talk about some today, the ways in which the the leadership of Israel were, were abusing their authority. Um, that the codification of those things is where rabbinic Judaism comes from. And it's also important to say that in a very practical way, the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel in 70 AD ended the persecution of Christians by the Jews. From 30 to 70 AD, um, there was some Roman persecution, but the instigator and even the executor of a lot of the persecution, the bulk of the persecution that took place in the church was from um, powerful Jews um, that used that power to try to exterminate what they saw as this false heretical teaching that Jesus was the Messiah and that he offered a new temple in his own body, the forgiveness of sins through his own very self. 
and, but 70 AD ended that. Um, Israel lost its power. Jews across the Roman Empire lost their influence because of the rebellion and how it was put down um, in Jerusalem. Um, it's also important to say that just from a practical perspective, think about this if you're a Christian, um, if you're a Jewish Christian especially, you've converted to Christianity, you've been baptized, you're a believer in Jesus now, and yet for, for 40 years, there are still sacrifices taking place in Jerusalem. Um, you know, you've come to believe this, this idea, this doctrine, this teaching that in Jesus' death, those sacrifices are unnecessary. But you go to the temple and you can see the glory of it. You can see um, all the animals being killed and, and it can raise questions in your mind about, well, is what Jesus taught right? Um, you know, there, all the power seems to be in Jerusalem, all the glory, and we're just here. We've got, just got bread and wine and, you know, we're doing really simple things. Um, it doesn't seem to compare. And, and you see actually this temptation for early Christians to go back to Judaism all over the New Testament, right? You see it with the Judaizers and the way in which in Galatians and Colossians and other Romans, um, um, there is this tension. People are wanting um, to keep Jewish law as a way to sort of please God. You also see it, I think, in the book of Hebrews. I take the book of Hebrews largely as uh, a letter that is sent um, a circular letter that is sent generally to the church that's especially addressed to Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to temple worship and abandon their faith in Jesus. And that's why the, the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is how Jesus is superior, right? Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior um, to the um, Aaronic priesthood, all these different things, that Jesus is the embodiment of the new temple, the new sacrificial system, so to speak, is found, is completed and found now in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But it's important to say in 70 AD, that really, that temptation basically stops in a, in a fundamental kind of way. I'm sure there are still Christians who apostatize and go back to the Judaism, but they no longer go back to what we would call Old Testament Israelite religion. They have to go into something else because there were no sacrifices to be made anymore. There was no competition, so to speak, in the world. All right, so I'm going to stop there before I talk. So I'm going to talk some about some of the redemptive historical implications as well. But any questions or thoughts about the things that I've covered so far about the, imp the impact of the destruction of the temple on Jews at the time and the establishment of rabbinic Judaism, those kinds of things? Yeah, Jeremy. That's fine. Well, I mean, it's important to say, first of all, that even hardly any Jews believe that. Um, so, you know, the, there isn't, I mean, there are some very radical fringe groups within quote-unquote Judaism um, that want to reestablish the temple and, you know, um, implement sacrifices again. Um, now, I think we can say geopolitically that would be disastrous in today's world for a number of reasons. Um, and so that there's no ability to do that uh, politically. Um, but it's also to say that's a very minority view. And I mean, mo if you go to their local rabbi in, our, in Colleyville, um, Rabbi Charlie, I, you know, we've, we know each other. 
and ask him, I'm sure he would say, why would we do that? Like, why would we want to establish the temple again and make sacrifices? Um, and that's because um, Judaism has changed. Like, what he is doing as, as a rabbi in their synagogue is fundamentally different than what a Levitical priest did. Um, does that make sense? Like, I think that's part of how it answers that question is just what it, the, it's not something that is even an expectation. Really, the people there, well, yeah, that's what primary thing I would say. I would also say it's been almost 2,000 years at this point, and I think that um, that's a fundamentally different kind of experience than any of the dispersions, you know, the minor ones that took place um, before uh, the Babylonian exile and the Babylonian exile, which itself was less than a century. You know, we're now 20 centuries into um, there being no, no temple. And I think that's a fundamentally different thing, just historically. You know. um, yeah. And of course, I would also argue about, well, the reason, right, it's not just an accident of history that the temple hasn't been reestablished. It's because Jesus actually reigns and rules over all of human history. And he has decided for us that there will be no more temple. And there will be no more temple, right? No matter if there are Christians out there who want there to be a temple for some reason. I don't understand. But Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. Like, I'm very confident, as about as confident as I am about anything politically, um, that there will never be a reestablishment of a temple in Jerusalem and sacrifices because I don't think Jesus would ever permit that. That's exactly right. Yeah, so there, there is, there is a, a strand of thought within American Christianity and has now spread um, in other places of the world that, that part of what's required for the second coming is a reestablishment of the temple and animal sacrifice. And part of this is the argument that that's because there's this abomination of desolation that has to um, be offered in the temple as a precursor to the, the end times, which that language comes out of the Olivet Discourse, and I'm actually going to argue it actually refers to something that's already happened. That if you look historically, the Roman armies apparently went into the temple before they destroyed it and offered sacrifices to their own pagan gods. And in my view, like we don't need to look for the abomination of desolation. Am I calling it the right word? Abomination? Yeah, of desolation. Um, that's not a future. That's, a, that's, that's taken place, right? That's already happened. We don't need to worry about it or happening, or we don't need to create it. Right, we don't need to create the circumstances so it can happen. Um, that uh, what's that? And what do you mean by that? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. I'd, and if people are doing, it, I'm sure there are people are doing that. that that's a very sad, uh, misguided thing. Yeah, I, and I should say like. Like, I'm not super confident about a lot of things in the future politically, right? Like, I can't tell you in 100 years if there will be United States of America. I don't know. But I can tell you in 100 years, there will not be a temple in Jerusalem offering sacrifices. That, that just, like, I'm, I'm extremely confident about that because I think that Jesus has made certain promises um, and he is actually the one who rules over all things. Yes, Kim. Yeah. Sure. 
sure. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think a lot of it is yeah, careful study of what actually was taking place in the first century, um, before, during the time of Jesus, but also after his time, and then 70 A.D. and after that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it it actually really helps us understand, which makes sense. I mean, that's what we do for any historical document, right? If you're going to understand Shakespeare well, you need to understand you know um, that period of time and what was going on culturally and historically, and so you can catch the illusions and understand the books that he was reading and those kinds of things. In the same way, if we're going to understand the New Testament, we need to understand first century history. Um, it's really important. All right, let me, let me continue to move here, and we'll take some more questions as we get. So I, I want to talk also about some of the redemptive historical implications of the destruction of the temple. Um, the first is this. The destruction of the temple, and this, this is almost, it's so easy for us not to fully grasp this. I just want to really... Hopefully this can sink in some um, for us as we think about Jesus and read the New Testament. Jesus, uh, in, in Old Testament Israelite religion, the status of being a prophet was really important, right? A prophet spoke for God. And what, what was supposed to be done to a false prophet, someone who claimed to speak to God for God but didn't, was lying. He was be killed, right? Stoned, um, executed. So the so Israelite religion took prophecy very importantly, and Jesus claimed to be a prophet of God. He claimed other things, but part of what he claimed to be was a prophet. And Jesus made two primary predictions or prophecies during his ministry. The first was that he would, as we've read in Mark, be rejected by the chief priests and scribes and elders, be killed, and then on the third day he would rise again. Right? He said it over and over again, numerous times. He staked himself on that. He also made a second prophecy, which was part of the reason why they put him to death, right? He was accused of it in his death. They couldn't get two witnesses to agree, but that the temple would be destroyed or that even he would destroy the temple in some ways. What the word, you know, word got around that Jesus was saying that, right? Jesus, and what we're going to see in Mark 13, makes a very um, concrete prediction prophecy about the temple being destroyed with even there's a time reference within the span, just like there's a time reference for the resurrection, by the way, right? Resurrection on the third day. He says it every time he predicts the resurrection, not just I'll be raised again, but I'll be raised on the third day. And he says the temple will be destroyed within a generation. Within a generation, this will take place. This will happen. And so it's very important to think about, you know, if you are a believer, again, in the first century after Pentecost, but before 70 AD, you believe that Jesus kept, that he showed himself to be a true prophet because that first prophecy came true, that he had died um, and then had risen again. Um, But the challenge of this prophecy being fulfilled was that you probably didn't see it, right? Um, There were only a few who saw, relatively speaking, who saw the risen Christ and could witness, right, who could testify um, to the veracity of his claim, that it had come true, what he had claimed. And so you believe this by faith, probably, um, but you knew that Jesus had made another prediction, which was that the temple would be destroyed. But for decades, right, Um, for decades, that wasn't happening. You looked at the temple, and you heard about it, and you saw the Jews persecuting Christians, 
And so you can understand how doubts might have arisen. Well, well, maybe the resurrection thing didn't really happen either, right? Um, uh, but then 70 AD happens, and you see, like, and if you read Mark 13, you, like, you see exactly what Jesus predicted unfolding and taking place. So just, I mean, I just think it's important for us to think about for that for a moment, like how important redemptive historically, just from that perspective, as a confirmation and affirmation of Jesus's lordship, of his divine nature, of his ability to speak for God, even of the veracity of his resurrection, was tied so intimately to the execution of his prophecy and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, if it had not, I mean, I think we can say that if, if that prophecy had not come true, then we would not inhabit the world that we inhabit in terms of a, a world that's, you know, where the gospel is going forward and people are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. It is um, an essential part of it. He may, he, and he, he made it an essential part of his ministry, right? Um, he deliberately prophesied about it and tied his reputation and his authority um, to its execution. And, and contra the resurrection that was witnessed only by a few, the destruction of Jerusalem was a, a public dramatic event that everyone in the Roman Empire would have heard about, right? Did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Oh, the Roman armies went in and they destroyed the temple. They burned it down. And then people could have gone back and said, oh, Jesus told his disciples that, you know, in around 30 AD that not one stone would be left standing upon another. This would take place within the span, time span of a generation. Well, what do you know? Does that make sense? Like just thinking about, I think this is really important for us to think about the way in which the, the destruction of the temple was an essential uh, redemptive historical event, even just in terms of Jesus's understanding of himself. Um, even apart from that, of course, though, in a much broader and bigger scale, the destruction of the temple was an affirmation that that central tenet of Jesus's teaching was true, that in himself he had become the new temple, that he was establishing um, something that was a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. And if you see during Jesus's ministry, this is what Jesus does, right? The paralytic comes down um, through the, the ceiling and lays before him. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, my son, what? Your sins are forgiven, right? It's really fascinating that story doesn't say, you know, maybe you want to be healed. No, he says, your sins are forgiven. And what does everyone say? Like, they're like gasps, right? They're like audible, you know, people are like, what? What did he just say? And they're thinking, as Jesus knows, they're offended because only God can forgive sins, right? And the forgiveness of sins is offered only where? At the temple, by the offering of animal sacrifice for atonement for your sin. And here is this man acting as though he has the power to do what only the temple can do, right? And there are a number of other ways we could talk about how Jesus and his ministry, one of the ways that to really read the Gospels is to see what Jesus is doing as being a sort of traveling temple. He's going um, to Galilee, right? He's going into, you know, outs outside of Judea into the, um, you know, where the garrison is. I mean, he's going to different, and he's basically doing what the temple does. He's cleansing people from their sin. He's making, the, he's acting as though they're ritually pure when they're not, right? He's doing all these things. He's healing them. He's doing all these things that were supposed to be happening at the temple in his own body, in his own flesh. And of course, that is all pointing towards his death on the cross, uh, and the apostles would take this up and understand, okay, what Jesus has done in his death is atone for sin in a way that the temple actually only pointed toward, was only a shadow of. Jesus is now fulfilled in his own death and resurrection. 
Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating connection. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, the, that's interesting. So Todd's saying you read Mark 13 and then you look later at Mark 15, you see a lot of parallels between Jesus' prophecy of the temple's destruction and the destruction of his own body. And it's important to say, too, that in John 2, Remember, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it um, after three days. And everyone's like, what is he talking about? How's he going to rebuild the temple after three days? And then John has this little editorial note, um, you know, parenthesis. Later, the disciples, um, after his resurrection, understood that he was talking about his own body. And they, they knew. And so John there clearly, and that's one of the things John does too, is to show Jesus. Jesus is showing himself to be the new temple, the temple that will be yeah, destroyed and then rebuilt. Um, and that's part of the answer to your question too, Jeremy, from earlier, is that one of the reasons we know the temple, the physical temple won't be rebuilt is because the true temple has been destroyed and has been rebuilt, so to speak, um, in his resurrection. Um, so, but it, it's just important for us to think about redemptive historically that, that all of Jesus' claims, his claim to be the true high priest, his claim to be the, the atoning sacrifice for sin, the claims that the apostles made for him in books like Hebrews and Romans and other places, these claims only really make sense if the, the other, the rival temple, is shown to be um, impotent, is shown to be um, unable to do what Jesus can do. Does that make sense? And the most public, dramatic way for that to happen was for it to be destroyed. Um, so the destruction of the temple was the final capstone on the new era of redemptive history that Jesus brought in, right? The age of the church, the age of the work of the Spirit, um, the age um, that we inhabit today, the age of the Great Commission. In this age, instead of the blood of animals being offered for the forgiveness of sins, right? The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus is now, and his present intercession for us at the right hand of the Father is now announced to all nations, right? You don't... Um, where instead of one particular place, right, you, didn't, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. I mean, you can if you want, but you don't have to as a Christian. It's not going to like, you know, God's not going to be happier or less happier with you if you do or don't. Um, you don't have to go to one place anymore now that is holy, um, but rather God is now present with his people everywhere by the presence of the Spirit, right? We actually are being built together into a dwelling place for God, um, a spiritual house as Peter says, under the authority of Jesus. That's such a fundamentally different era of redemptive history. Um, instead of the bloody ordinances of circumcision and Passover and even the bloody sacrifices of animals, right now we have bloodless sacraments where God dwells with us through uh, water and bread and wine and word. Um, God um, communes with us in these ways, and that's a, that's a fundamentally different way. Um, from a redemptive historical perspective, it's impossible to imagine a truly Christian world where the temple still exists. Um, it's not just an accident of history. It's, it's essential um, to what Jesus was doing in his, in his ministry and his establishment of the church. Um, and it's also, I didn't bring this out in this handout, but I was thinking about it more this morning. I think it's also fair to say that, that one of the redemptive historical implications of the temple 
being destroyed is that we can be assured, as we're going to think about today, that God will actually judge sin. God will judge rebellion. God will um, make things right because he judged apostate Israel, right? Those whom he loved, he was willing to judge. And that actually should be sobering for us, that if God was willing to destroy his temple, if God was willing to bring about the destruction of Israel as a, as a nation uh, because of their apostasy, because of the rebellion against their, his son, will he not also be willing to judge us and to judge the world? He will, right? And, and the destruction of the temple is meant to be a sobering thing for us too, that God will indeed judge the world through his son Jesus on the last day. We can be assured of that because he judged the nation that he had taken as his own possession. So what about the nation of Israel or the Jewish people today? I just really, I've said these things to you before, but just to say them straightforwardly. Um, it seems to me to be the teaching of the New Testament that the church is now the true Israel um, in the sense that those who are united to Jesus are now the true descendants of Abraham. I would argue, and there's a much broader argument, I would in some ways would argue that this has always been the case, that descendant from, being descended from Abraham has never been a matter of blood, but always of faith. But certainly we could say that today, um, and the argument of the New Testament is again and again that, that those who have faith in Jesus are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. You see this explicitly in Galatians, um, where Paul talks about that. Um, you see it in Romans um, and other places that, that actually it is the church who is the true Israel um, because of their faith in Jesus. It's important to say that this does not mean that the church has replaced Israel. Um, ethnically speaking, that I don't think replacement theology is the right way to describe this. Um, what I think, what I, what I want to say is that, that there is now only one true and faithful Israelite, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, right? So Israel, all of God's promises to Israel are still yes and amen, but how are they yes and amen? They're yes and amen through Jesus, right? They're yes and amen through the Messiah, through the faithful Israelite. And now we are the true Israel because we are united to him, right? Not as though somehow God looks at us and pretends like we're Israel now or something. Um, no, because Israel has, it's almost like they're, you know, you think about remnant, how the Lord was always stripping away the remnant, uh, the, the false believers and, and the true remnant remained. I would argue that in Jesus's life and ministry, he becomes the remnant, right? And his death on the cross, he becomes the last and only actually faithful Israelite. And now the only way to be part of Israel is through union with him. And how are we united to him? We're united to him through faith and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you were Jewish um, in descent uh, in terms of your, your ancestry. Um, so I think that's an important distinction that I want to make, that the church is the true Israel because Jesus is the true Israelite, and we are brought into union with him. So implications of this, um, the, the modern state of Israel, uh, political state of Israel, I would just say is not important spiritually or theologically. Um, it is an interesting historical story about um, democracy, and there are some aspects of colonialism um, that are involved with it, and um, all sorts of things from a geopolitical perspective. But I mean, if you read the story, histories, I mean, the establishment of the modern nation state of India is also an interesting story about democracy and colonialism and 
politics. And I would say in the redemptive scheme that God is working, neither the establishment of the modern nation state of India or Israel are more important than another, right? They're, it's just the Lord works. Of course, he works through history. And of course, he worked in 1948 when Israel was established. But he also worked um, in India when that democracy was established. Um, and you can say that about, of course, but other um, rise and fall of nations throughout the world. Um, thus, I would say there's no spiritual reason, there's no theological reason for us as Christians to support the nation state of Israel as a political entity um, any more than we would you know, support some other political state. Um, so I, I think that's just, I just want to say that, that's where I am, that's the posture I would encourage you to take. So this means that to be a Jewish person is unimportant, spiritually speaking, not that it is a deficit, it's just, it's just simply irrelevant spiritually um, to be a person of Jewish descent versus a person who's not of Jewish descent, right? God loves Jewish people, yes. God also loves people from India and people from Africa and people from Asia and people from all over the world, and he, that's how he loves the Jewish people. He loves them as he loves the world um, because there is only one true faithful Israelite, and that's Jesus, right? Um, and thus, I would say there's no theological or spiritual reason to prior, prioritize the evangelization, the evangelization of Jewish people over non-Jewish people. I'm not saying we should not evangelize the Jews. We should evangelize the Jews, right? Um, but we should not act as though evangelizing the Jews was some especially important task of the church over and against evangelizing, you know, people in, in uh, Indonesia or people in Papua New Guinea or people in wherever you want to pick, right? We are called to evangelize the Jews because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what I've commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's true for the Jewish people as well as Gentiles. Yeah, Terry. Yeah, let me, I'd probably be good for me to talk in more in depth with you after. I would say what I believe Romans 11 is talking about, it probably, probably asks him at the end of Romans 11 where he talks about how all Israel will be saved. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So just very briefly, I would say, I think that that refers there to um, the totality of the church in union with Jesus Christ. So we can talk more about why I think that, but that's how I take Romans 11. It's not a reference to ethnic Israel. Um, it's a reference to um, the true Israel um, in the person of Jesus and those who are united to him that Paul is absolutely confident that all Israel will indeed be saved. Yeah, but we can talk further about that. Um, and then I would just say simply, there is no, because of the destruction of the temple, because of all these things, there's no spiritual benefit of practicing or even reenacting Old Testament ceremonial law. All of that came to an end um, in the person of Jesus and catechismically came to an end in the destruction of the temple. And I just, I just would encourage you to be very careful about people who claim that if you, you know, go to their Passover meal or their Seder or you hang certain things in your house um, or whatever it might be, um, that, I mean, those things might be interesting from a historical perspective, um, although you should, you know, explore those historical claims because I think often they're pretty dubious in terms of, you know, actually being what took place in the Old Testament. I think probably if you do those things, you're going to be interacting more with rabbinic Judaism, which is, as I've argued, a different religion, which Jesus condemned. <laughs> um, 
than what happened in the Old Testament. Um, but even if you figure out a way how they actually, Moses actually did Passover, right? And you get to do it somehow and, and participate. Like, you are not doing anything that is spiritually important. Like, it's, it's just simply not. And it's not because of redemptive history. Um, because it might be interesting to you, it might be helpful in some ways, but it'd be no more helpful than, you know, going to the Holy Land and walking, uh, you know, around Galilee and saying, oh, now I understand the Gospels better because of the geography. I see the, how the geography works or something. Um, that's how it would be helpful. It would not be helpful in some kind of spiritual, theological way. I'm going to have to pray, but I'll be happy to take questions. All right, let's, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your, your care for us, the way that you um, deal with us, the way that you're faithful, even in the person of your son. We pray that we put our trust in him um, and that we would give thanks for the, all the faithfulness you've shown to us and your people throughout the centuries. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.